And, and there were many times when I was younger when I, I rejected that. I said, well, it's the business's fault. They should understand me, <laughs> you know, or us, my design team. But I think a long time ago, I decided that I had to be in the Trojan horse. You know, I had to look like the enemy. I put a suit on at Barclays, you know, not a tie. <laughs> that was too much. <laughs> but you're right, using that language because, you know, we want people to go on that journey and we have to work out how that's going to be. And um, so, you know, making people feel like they're authoring the creative solutions that come up is a very powerful way of making them then deliver them. But I'm not interested in just imagining a new service. I'm not interested in imagining a new interface or, or product. I'm interested in delivering it. <laughs> and Absolutely. as good as we can get it, you know, I hate the word minimum viable product. It has to be minimum viable experience. It has to work for the customer, not just for the development team. Hi everyone, welcome to Design Rose, where we explore why, how and what design and designers are driving forward. The mission is to interview the most forward-thinking designers and innovative creators on the planet to inspire and help you to reach your full creative potential and to make a positive impact in the world. In the episode, I chat with Clave Gringer, Head of Service Design at the Royal College of Arts in London. Clave has a tremendous experience in service design, heading up departments and initiatives at Barclays, Kisco, Orange, UK Design Council, Samsung, and IBM. In his early career, he was also the founder of the design agency Tangerine, where he worked with Johnny Ive before he went to Apple. With Clave, we talk about the future of design, how to measure the impact of design, and how to make sure you drive impact with service design. But we'll also talk about how you bring service design, integrate service design with an organization. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, I'm here with Clave Gringer. Thank you so much for taking the invitation. My great pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me. Yeah, uh, really excited to talk to you about service design. You have a long history and you made a lot of experience in service design. So we're going to uh, dive into that, all of the projects and you know, how service design has changed over the years, which I think it has quite a bit and quite evolved, I think. And then we're also going to talk about uh, where you think it's going, some of your experiences when it comes to education and industry projects. Mm -hmm. So I'm super excited about that. I think what it would be really great for the start if you could give the audience a bit of an uh, outline about your journey and some of your experiences and how you actually got into design in the first place. Absolutely. It has been quite a journey, I have to admit. I started life as a product designer. I came out of what we now call Central St. Martins. It was called Central School of Art and Design, and it was a tremendous, uh, tremendously historical art college, the only college in London, actually, where I could do design, strangely enough, at undergraduate. And I was very lucky when I left that course in industrial design engineering, as it was called. One of the principals of what was then called Mogridge Associates. Her name was Hedda Beast. She was inspirational person in, in many of our lives, actually, many of my colleagues. And uh, three of us from Central were taken on to Mogridge Associates. Bill Mogridge, a wonderful designer, one of the founders of IDEO. I think possibly one of the forgotten founders of IDEO. But he teamed up with Dave Kelly and his old chum, um, chums and, and ex-colleagues to create create IDEO, this great sort of powerhouse of design. So I started off pre-IDEO, spent a fantastic time working with them, including working in California. And that was a very, very uh, influential experience, especially as it was the, was the time of the invention, really, of user interface and digital platforms. And in fact, you know, many of us who started off as pure product designers 
found ourselves really lured into this world of interaction and user interface. And there's many, many famous names who came out of that IDEO melting pot, Colin Burns, now at Apple, next BBC, lots of us came out from that sort of background. But I also wanted to spread my wings a bit and fairly quickly, well, after five years or so, when I came back from the States, started my own company, which was called Tangerine with a friend of mine called Martin Derbyshire and a young designer who joined us quite quickly, who I'd met when he was a student intern called Johnny Ive. And uh, I don't think I need to say any more about his story. You can interview him separately. <laughs> but um, amazing to, to know him when he was a student at Newcastle, Northumbria, University of Northumbria. Just the most amazing designer and the loveliest person. And I was, you know, he came and worked as part of Tangerine for a number of years before, before he got the call from Apple. We were actually working with Apple. And he came in with a big smile on his face. And that was that fabulous fun times developing Tangerine. But I think both he and I were very keen on delivering design from the inside. It can be frustrating being a design consultant and um, you do fantastic work and then you see it you know, perhaps not quite come through as you want. And perhaps people in decision making positions not quite understanding. I suppose that's really, in essence, why I became a service designer in the end. But I was very interested in getting in-house. So uh, I worked for a couple of other agencies along the way, but um, but started up the Samsung design office as my first big in-house experience in Europe. And they built a, an office in London. It's still very successful. And there was a time when Samsung wasn't quite as well known as it now is. And I like to think that our little design team that we started had a role in helping Samsung enter into a very different market in Europe. And that was hardware and also software in terms of we were beginning to develop interactions. The first cell phone for Samsung in Europe, for example, quite historic projects to work on. I moved on and during my career, uh, did a number of other roles. I worked for the UK Design Council. I really enjoyed talking about design to people who don't perhaps understand what it's about or have perceptions of design that I think we all suffer from. You know, they were somehow decorative and something you just do at the end. I'm a big believer that there's some really important decisions that are in fact design decisions. So I was always interested in in-house. Uh, I moved on um, and worked for Orange Mobile Phone, worked in Paris with France Telecom, who owned Orange, as it was at that time. And Orange is still present in many parts of the world, not no longer, sadly, in the UK. And then worked with Cisco, pushing really the boundaries of in-house design into a company that makes the internet work, but had a remit to explain to businesses the potential of this amazing new thing, the internet and the power. And I was pulling together some very innovative projects with all sorts of businesses to help them understand the future of broadband internet, working with retail, working with financial services, working with cities, Barcelona, Amsterdam. Hugely exciting five years of my life. But one of my clients was Barclays. So I ended up in a bank, never expected to do that. And I was using all the same design methodologies that I started with when I was designing Ford car radios with Bill Mogridge. It was the same methods, but now I was designing very important journeys for people, how you transact, how you save, how you hit your goals and how you engage with your financial life. And that's really where I became a real service designer. We developed a service design team, very successful one, uh, initially to reduce complaints in the bank and eventually to create completely new propositions and uh, really, really enjoyed that. I left that after five years or so, started my own business, worked with a startup on digital identity, and then got the call from the Royal College of Art. And I'm just coming up to my second anniversary 
of uh, head of design, head of service design, I should say, at the Royal College of Art in London, a course that is not yet 10 years old, but has been incredibly influential in creating generations, cohorts of service designers who've gone on to, I think, transform the world. So I'm very happy to Absolutely. be here. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a very, it's a historically an important place of design. I think Royal College of Arts, a lot of great talents came from there and I think it plays an important role. Now also more and more in service design, which is great. And uh, thanks for sharing and outlining your journey and experiences. It's truly amazing to hear that. And um, I'm wondering a little bit, as you already touched on the positive impact that you can make to service design. And any projects that come into your mind that where you first had the feeling, wow, I can really make a positive impact either to business, the success of a venture, or even to human or people's life mm. through service design process? What a, was a particular moment or a certain project that specifically stand out to you in seeing that value? A few moments along the way when I suddenly realized that design could have a really big impact beyond the product or the interface. And I've always believed had a tremendous inner faith that design is kind of the missing link in business and society and that we all have a role to play in it. But actually at Orange, it was the first time I saw how the whole experience was actually chaotic and accidental and wasn't designed. And the experience from a customer's point of view of perhaps going to a physical retail store and choosing a phone and choosing a tariff, it's a very complex journey through buying a mobile phone you know, there's many many choices many many miscommunications many bad explanations very difficult to know what you're doing and that's only in the store <laughs> or, or online and then you use a phone maybe it goes wrong you know i remember at orange a phone would come back from say nokia and we would say it's not our responsibility you've got to send it back to the manufacturer i realized what a tremendous opportunity was lost to hold that brand relationship And brand has always been something I've been fascinated with. So Orange is very important in terms of piecing the whole thing together, including the performance of the network, including the performance of the call center. I began to understand that this was a big orchestra and it needed to be scored and conducted to really work because, of course, we only forget the worst. Sorry, only remember the worst bit of our experience. And that's how we judge a brand or uh, an experience that we've had. So that was my main learning experience. I would say that going to Barclays, I really, I was surprised at how real this was to our customers and working with, you know, young people trying to save up money to buy their own house, flat, whatever, in any part of the country, let alone London, where it's almost impossible. And, you know, service design is about listening first and going and listening to young people. And funny enough, hearing them blame me. <laughs> because I worked for a bank. <laughs> you know, it's all my fault. <laughs> and I thought, wow, okay, there's some real pain, there's some real emotion. And this is, you know, the bank thinks we're just fixing a mortgage for them. These people are building lives, they're building homes to have their future children in, to grow old in, to hand on to their, their children. This is this is a big story. <laughs> and I I found that disconnect between how the organization sees a product. And how the customer sees that sort of life impact. I found it fascinating. And I realized that was where we had to go and play. That was important for us to orchestrate that experience and explain back to the organization what was really going through customers' minds. And we had the evidence. We were listening to people. And we were able to take that back. And it was a shock to everybody inside that bank. They had no idea. <laughs> and they were aggrieved and upset. And I said, but that's, 
how it is. What are we going to do about it? And that's what I love about service design. The world is full of research. It's full of data. <laughs> what do we do with it? We've got to create something new, something better. And that's where, for me, it gets really, really exciting. So I think working on a project like getting young people a mortgage was was actually life-changing for me and the bank. Yeah, absolutely. Right, There's so much data and research, right? But I think that's why the service design implementation phase is so important, besides the thinking and the conceptual phase. And uh, sometimes it can happen that you just lose that in the process. The implementation yes. phase can be happen if you work sometimes maybe from an external side on a project and there's no internal takeover then that could, for example, happening. No, yeah. completely agree. The other problem, of course, is when people in the, in the business think they have the solution, especially if it's the chief executive, that's very problematic. <laughs> and you then, you then have to deconstruct that solution and explain why it's terrible. But again, this other aspect of design, not only do we create ideas, we create lots of ideas and we prototype and test them. So I often describe design as a risk reduction process, which surprises people in business. But it is because you make these decisions and you test them before you press the pounds, dollars, whatever, euros, development budget. And, you know, I, I still struggle with why people don't get it. It, it. it just doesn't make any sense to me. But I know that most people don't get it. They just want to have a solution and run. I try, I spend all my efforts in life to say, we've got a fantastic process here. We can build evidence, we can prove and test. And again, working in those projects at Barclays, we were able to show that. And people shifted. And, and chief executives would draw double diamonds on the wall and pretend they'd invented it. And that was great. <laughs> We'd affected a culture change, which I suppose is the ultimate the ultimate goal of a service design so yeah, that you don't have to be in the room, you know, you can let them get on with it. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the, the ultimate goal, I think. Right. And I think you're touching on an important aspect that comes up over and over in the podcast, actually the aspect of how do you communicate design? Obviously, you're already touching on that. You're using business terms and talk about these, you know, KPIs and values and uh, talk about the language in, in, in the sense of what is important for a business stakeholder to see the value. Um, so using there are different terms there than maybe designers usually use to uh, articulate their design. Yeah, so I, think. I, I think you make an excellent point there. So, and, and there were many times when I was younger when I, I rejected that. I said, well, it's the business's fault. They should understand me, <laughs> you know, or us, my design team. But I think a long time ago, I decided that I had to, be in the Trojan horse. You know, I had to look like the enemy. I'd put a suit on at Barclays, you know, not a tie. <laughs> that was too much. <laughs> But you're right, using that language, because, you know, we want people to go on that journey and we have to work out how that's going to be. Um, so, you know, making people feel like they're authoring the, the creative solutions that come up is a very powerful way of making them then deliver them. But I'm not interested in just imagining a new service i'm not interested in imagining a new interface or, or product i'm interested in delivering it <laughs> and Absolutely. as good as we can get it you know i hate the word minimum viable product it has to be minimum viable experience it has to work for the customer not just for the development team and there's so many assumptions that businesses make that i think damage their own businesses in fact by not being more customer centric not not listening and understanding not jumping to solutions so I remember going for a job interview once where somebody said, you know, this job is 60% politics, don't you? And I said, you're kidding me. I've never had a job less than 95% politics. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's my particular role in this world is to try and open the road, open the window, open the door to the amazing creative design talents that might be in my teams or my students to get them to be effective. 
you know, I happen to be a design politician, I think. <laughs> um, though I have to say, I miss and still love the opportunity to be a designer, but I realise I have to use my power. My super skill is different, and it's about paving the way for great design talent to really be effective and delivered. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also an important aspect, right? I think the throughout the career of designer, the the kind of skill set changes uh, that is needed, yeah. and you evolve over time, and um, it's then you know along the way it's going to be very different different skills but uh, having that knowledge about the design obviously creates a link yes um, no entirely, so i agree so you can't i remember there used to be something called design management they used to teach it and they kind of stopped because they realized you had to have been a designer <laughs> you really have to and yeah. you know you have to you know plane some wood or done some ux or something to really And then you can go and talk about it to more senior people or become more senior yourself. That's always the goal. Yeah, absolutely. That makes total sense. Um, Absolutely. You're touching on an important aspect already, the effectiveness of design. Mm. Um, I think this is obviously also always that, you know, it's very often discussed. How do you measure the impact of service design? Are there certain KPIs that you work with? And if you had which kind of KPIs or how do you generally approach that when you set up a project? I agree with you it's a really important area my approach to kpis metrics is to agree them whatever they are very early on and i think that's quite a powerful force because if we all agree that a project will be successful when you know and it could be anything from you double your income or you double your footfall in a library or you uh, you know re- you reduce the Um, you reduce the number of people who don't turn up for their court cases. That was a great one we had recently. You know, metrics can be so many things. But for me, they're very powerful when you agree them early, because then you can go and apply the design process. You can be creative, you can validate and test. And opinion is taken away. You know, is this showing evidence that more people turn up to court, more people are buying your product? Um, you know, more people are are using your application beyond the five hours of downloading it. <laughs> you know, there's so many different types of metric. So I find it quite difficult to say it's always this, but I do insist. And, you know, it's part of this heartbeat of the design process we have. You know, we, we expand our ideas when we research and we come down and we define what it is we want to do. And at that point, I, I really encourage people to say, so so how are we going to know when we now get creative and when we now test and we then go and build something, let's decide now what success looks like. And the second aspect of this is sometimes that takes a long time and it might just take a long time to build something. If you're testing the impact of a vehicle or a product, it's a long time. If even a user interface, how are you going to know? So KPIs for me are about the big end goal, but also what are the weak signals that might come along that say, you know, I think I think we're going the right way. It's it's actually another epiphany project for me was another Barclays project where we found out that people actually just wanted to come and talk to us about money. But but what they did not want was to have people sell to them. And they did not want anyone taking a record because they they feared that if they told people how much they spent on Uber or Starbucks, it would somehow go against them. So we created and we tested a new, completely new type of product that was basically saying, come in and have a chat. Now, how do you measure that? <laughs> Now, one of the interesting measurements was, first of all, would our, you know, measurable things like net promoter score, which we all hate, but we have to put up with <laughs> 
because it's a fairly crude but fundamental way. Will people recommend you for anyone who's new to Net Promoter? If you ask somebody, if they say they would recommend your service to a friend, bang, fantastic. If they say they're not sure or they actually won't, that's whoa, very negative. But um, so you can do that, of course. But with this particular service, I think we call it something like, um, what was it, Money, Money Mentor or something. We designed it in great detail. It's the person across the desk or beside you. Do they have a notepad or an iPad or nothing? You know, we did all that. And then one of the one of the metrics was, will another bank copy it? And you bet they did. <laughs> the minute it was announced, they all went and did the same thing. Now, you know, it's a funny metric, but it was really interesting. We moved the industry. <laughs> and it showed that obviously people were curious and interested and it, feel, it felt like something else was happening. So there's lots of different types of metrics is I think the answer to your question and decide them at the definition stage. And then when somebody else in the company says, well, I think we should do this, you can come back to that metric and say, well, okay, where's your prototype and did it work? So I, I actually am a quite a believer in the science of design. I've always believed when I was a product designer and the boss would come in with a, you know, a drawing, you must've had it happen. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do you know so you you agree beforehand you know what is the style you want what is the user what where what's the strategy of this design brief once you've agreed that and how are we going to measure it then you actually have freedom in a way to make sure you're allowed to try and achieve that so i think metrics are hugely important for design freedom actually <laughs> mm -hmm. oh that's a nice way to put it yeah <laughs> actually this matches very well with one recent episode guest i had matt wallot who talked about with a behavior scientist and talks about having a behavior vision board early on in the project behavior outcomes are very Yes. are KPIs, right? That means early on with all your stakeholders, you define like what is the kind of key behavior you want to create for the customer, whatever that is. And uh, you align early on and you make this behavior vision board transparent to everyone. So everyone can work towards that decided goal, right? And very often it can happen in, uh, in an organization that, you know, we don't know what the behavior vision is or the behavior outcome we want to achieve because there are many, too many maybe, or it's not particular enough or we don't understand really the why for it. So I think that's very interesting. And I think you touched on that um, as well, the aspect of behavior and kind of what kind of outcome do you want to create? Talking about maybe the success factors of service design project kind of also connected to KPIs in a certain way. Uh, how do you ensure as a designer or as a maybe as a project lead or design lead, if you set up a service design project, how do you ensure the out positive outcome of that project? What are the kind of key things that you would say like every project needs to have in order to be positive, have to have yeah. a positive outcome in the end? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That's a great, that's a great question. Uh, I think there's a few answers to that. I mean, on one level, you have to, at the start of your service design project, understand, again, what the metric is, but what's the vision? What, what is it you're trying to actually do? Are you trying to, are you trying to help a, somebody in a vulnerable financial situation? Are you trying to overcome a barrier to technology? And all these things become your mission, if you like, the mission that your project needs to achieve And in, in a way, that is a sort of metric as well, but it's usually expressed more poetically. <laughs> so I, I really encourage all my students and all my designers I've worked with to understand very early on what actually is the mission we're on. And there's a very practical benefit to that as well. I remember working in uh, in Paris in France Telecom, uh, R&D, and um, they would come with tremendously interesting bits of technology 
and say, right, we're going to we're going to design this now. We're going to design it ready for market. And you'd have the kickoff meeting and I would go around drawing what I thought people had said the project was. And you'd hold it up and people would go, no, c'est pas ça. No, 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 no. And, and everyone goes, we, we, parfait. Hang on a minute. Half the room is saying one thing and half is saying the other. Yeah, we yeah. need to sort this out now <laughs> and make sure we're on the same mission. And uh, that was really super important, especially with the sort of multidisciplinary um, and, and, and perhaps people who are more introvert, who don't want to admit that, you know, six months down the project, they suddenly realize they're doing a different project. And that happens, as I'm sure you know. So having a sense of mission, super, super important. But impact was your, your question. And I think um, there's, a, there's a range of impacts. So one of the things we've started talking a lot about the RCA is minimum design intervention and I, I learned this from a talk by somebody who was doing service design in a hospital, in a medical environment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their first statement was, you can't service design a hospital. It's just too big. You know, it, it would take generations. You can't design it. You know, so what are you going to do? You're going to you're going to sort of try and find those those opportunities where you can make an intervention. Design is an intervention and for the better, obviously. Uh, and, and so what is the minimum design intervention for the maximum impact? A great example I use was one that came from one of my one of my colleagues. It was a piece of paper that when somebody left hospital, they filled in a bunch of questions like, what's your GP? Do you have somewhere to go? <laughs> is somebody collecting you? Because what they, you know, this was solving a problem that people would leave hospital healthy and be back the next day. <laughs> Perhaps they had nowhere to go, you know, but nobody ever asked the question. So that's a very simple design intervention to design for in that case. But it had a massive impact on reducing the returns, almost immediate returns to hospitals. So, you know, you look at your problem, you look at the mission and you find perhaps the minimum thing. Sometimes we call that low hanging fruit, don't we? But maybe there are things that are easy that have big impact. At the same time, I'm a big believer in having a vision. I like and I think it's important wherever I've gone into a new role. I try and pull together some aggregated vision that I can give to everybody who, and they can be proud of that and they can understand, again, the mission they're on. I know we won't deliver all of it. <laughs> yeah. I know we might only deliver a part of it. And then understanding what, again, the minimum viable experience from the customer information and insight that we have, what is the thing they really need? And then delivering that first. My experience working with, with so many t- massive development projects is you get this kind of someone come in and say well you can't have all of it pick from this bunch here like it's a sort of random thing we must work together to understand what is the one most important thing that that user or customer or human needs uh, and it could even be you know the staff what do they need to deliver it actually mm-hmm. we're learning that user-centered design is bigger <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a different thing now and that's uh, that will answer your question on the future of service design probably So impact is measured in lots of different ways. But at the end of the day, you know, the big impact is, you know, have have people not failed? Have people succeeded? Have you made more money or have you solved that problem? Are you on the way to solving that problem? And it's only worth it if you have impact. If you don't have impact, we all know this. You haven't failed. You've learned. Please, you've learned. (laughs) You've iterated it around. If I didn't have impact, let me go and understand how to have impact. Because there's no point just walking away. Is an accountant or HR going to solve that problem any better? No. <laughs> we have to learn from that. And impact is a, 
an evolving thing all the time. And people's expectations grow as well, of course. And every company you work for only measure their impact compared to other similar companies. But of course, people are comparing it to Disney or Amazon, not just your little insurance company or hospital. So having meaningful impact for people means a lot of different things. And service designers, I think, are a brilliant position to stand back and understand what impact really is and help people get there, facilitate a long answer. But it's a big question. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, I really like how you outlined that. Uh, also, the aspect that, you know, design is an intervention. I think this is also a very interesting way to put it. Talking a bit about the implementation of services, which is you know, also connected to obviously have a successful outcome, but the different ways services centers could be integrated in projects. Very often service design also has a role of facilitation, right? But you can, you know, there are different ways a service designer could be integrated in an organization, a company. Yeah. Could you maybe outline this a little bit? What from your experience are ways service design could be implemented in an organization or a service designer? could be implemented in an organization uh, or project? Yeah, that's such a great question. And it's something that people often ask us, you know, when they often ask us, what is service design? You know, because very, very, most people don't really understand what it is. And it's a mishmash of many things. But I think the, the value of service design is a number of things. And this is what we try and take into an organization. And I say into an organization very purposefully, because I think we have to slightly change an organization for it to be more successful. That is what service design does. There is a sense of, uh, we, we often just refer to it as curiosity, but that idea that a service design will come in and be able to diagnose, if you like, and really in quite a fair way, get from everybody an understanding of very often what is going wrong, or let's not forget what is going right. How do we find the wow? We always forget to talk about positive of service design? How do we find new opportunities to make an amazing experience? But often we find ourselves fixing stuff because it just doesn't work very well. And, and systems and organizations are horribly complex. So having a service designer take a very holistic view and the tools of service design, such as journey mapping, such as identifying pain points and opportunities, it's a very powerful visual way of helping everybody understand what, what is currently going on. And very rarely do people understand what is currently going on. So many product managers I've worked with have a PowerPoint slide with process boxes. And for some reason, they seem to think that's what's really happening. But one of the first things we always do, and I did in, in Barclays and other places, was go on a service safari and understand what is the experience of a customer of what you currently have. And it was, you know, I would ring every number on the website to find out where it really went. And it very rarely went to the place it was meant to go to. <laughs> um, you know, you find out in this deep exploration, this deep dive, this experience safari and mapping reality. It's amazing how companies don't know what their customer experience really is like. So there's a very powerful thing I think service designers do there. That's why we always say extreme curiosity, courage to play it back to a product manager who's terribly proud of their failing service and blames the customers or something, or blames marketing usually mm -hmm. or something. So that reality, very holistic view, is something you don't get, even from, from great research departments, customer research departments. You know, I think that let's look at how the system is currently delivering. That's very powerful. And then that collaborative way of creating, okay, well, what can we do to solve this? What would be a solution? And we, we do facilitate. You're right. It is a word we use. 
I'm increasingly using the word lead. I think service designers lead people to happier places, to places where their problems disappear because they've all understood the problems and they've all worked together. And you have to be positive. You have to be optimistic. I think service designers bring optimism, as all designers do, of course. It is possible to make something better. We're going to try and do this together. And then these tools are very quick prototyping and testing. And the ability to go back to research again, to iterate that through, is a quite simple in a way. It's not rocket science, but they're tremendously impactful. And there really isn't anyone else in an organisation who actually does that, who actually owns that whole process of looking at what's wrong, bringing people together to be creative, and then prototyping and testing and reducing the risk. And, and then producing, I, I hear a lot from my graduates who've gone out into the world, they produce these magical things called blueprints, which are sometimes likened to a conductor's score where you see what all the instruments are playing through the piece of music. It's more more usually described as a stage, a theatrical performance where you have your actors on the front and your people backstage and your scenery. It's quite a useful way of explaining how we create. But there's some really essential things here that, again, people don't often do. You have the customer scenario as you want it to be, What are all the things we have to achieve? Where are all the bits of the company that need to achieve it? Where are the innovation roadmaps? We need to go and knock on their door and say, please, can we have this feature? Or actually, look at this is what we're trying to do. Now change your roadmap, create a new roadmap, go and buy a company that does this, whatever it is. Go and train somebody so they understand their customers aren't as bad as they think. It's not their fault. There's so many actions that come out of a blueprint. And in a way, you've only just started So you now have to go and kind of manage that implementation of a service. It is horribly complicated, but it does work. And I think over the last, literally the life of the course, 10 years, people have woken up to this. They've seen innovation in prison services to to retail, to car companies, telecommunication companies, to charities. They're really learning that this is a way that works and it overcomes problems that people might have spent decades trying to solve. That was certainly true of my time at Barclays, solving problems that absolutely nobody could solve, using these processes to find out what the problem really is, join together, create a vision and deliver it. And it's hugely exciting for the whole company. You know, service designers are not in the back room. And I think where you see companies where service designers are just brought into meetings to kind of occasionally pitch in, that's no good. <laughs> there is a sense of leadership that you need to make sure service designers do or service designers will come and lead for you and help you gain benefit from all this. But it's um, it's not about sprinkling magic dust and saying, there you go, I'm leaving now. It's a deeper relationship. And I think that's why so many of my graduates work with some amazing design agencies, but it is more difficult for agencies and somebody famous in a famous design agency, I won't mention who they are, has talked about organ rejection. You can spend six months with a company and you do amazing work and then you go away and you come back six months later and it's all gone back to how it was. And that's horrible, horrible, but it happens. <laughs> so it's a really difficult job we've got. It's like, you know, a product designer making sure they really do get it out there. UX designer making sure the usability really is as good as you want it to be. There's always the craft of design, isn't there? And there is a craft in service design, absolutely. And the touch points are vital. They need to be coordinated and orchestrated. Getting that over the line is, is ends up being a massive management job, I guess. The service designer is quality control manager, lead inspirer, <laughs> you know, trying to make sure that it really, it really happens. It's a big job. <laughs> 
Absolutely. And it's very much also about connecting stakeholders very often. I really love the term service safari uh, that you were mentioning. I need to note this down. <laughs> it's good uh, fun. It's good fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, from my rather short um, design journey compared to yours, uh, I experienced that uh, service design can be integrated in companies very differently. You know, service designer could work on an agency side from the outside, right? supporting maybe um, a, a change management or a, a product team or product management team or even higher on the, mm -hmm. the leadership board. Because as service design, as you want to have look at the big picture, right? Service design could also be very much implemented in a, in a strategy department where you think about the future and think about what do you need to enable in the long run to get have the right enablers, thinking about technical things you need, thinking about the business model changes you need. And they all take sometimes years in implementation. So you need to define them early, right? So that's another way service design could implement it. Also, a project manager could use elements of service design and kind of zoom out from there and use service design not as an expert, but apply service design thinking to a project. Um, I also experienced that you know, UX designers sometimes for a project could zoom out to a service design level and apply service design basically uh, without actually being a service design, obviously on, on the, the expert level, but applying the thinking and the doing. So that's, I think, very interesting when it comes to service design, the variety of ways they can be implemented in a company. And this is very different, I think, to maybe an aspect like industrial design, where I think the, the role is more defined. I think with service design, it's, it's really like a big spectrum. Well, a terrific point. I mean, the reason I became a service designer was in a way I was so frustrated about being a product designer and i think your word strategy is hugely important i think the world underestimates the impact all design can make to strategy it can visualize a strategy it can make you understand what it is one of our students just did a fantastic graduation project with the mergers and acquisitions how they never check the customer reaction to a merger and acquisition they're doing legal diligence and economic financial diligence they never bother to ask customers and Perhaps that's why 80% of mergers and acquisitions fail. <laughs> you know, these things seem so obvious to me. But I do think strategy is a very important word. And, and this idea, when I was a product designer, and, and you may well really relate to this, you know, I knew I couldn't even put a radius on something unless we had agreed the manufacturing process, perhaps, and the material. And, and that was an economic decision. And that was to do with the market size. You know, were we selling five of these products or were we selling five million you know this made a big difference on to whether i could put a radius on it <laughs> and so it, it always felt to me right from the the get-go as they say in the states that intimately linked to big strategic decisions and those big strategic decisions are often made without any reference to design or reference to the impact it will have on the value the beauty the relevance to customers and, and will they buy it you know these are so closely hardwired and yet somehow the wires cut so often so i i really do agree with you and i think that um from a service design perspective we're much happier to share we want people to be infected by these methods and processes there's been a lot of controversy around design thinking where you know perhaps people run off with it as a set of processes you know we know very well that the processes are only the foundation of a good service designer. It's about leadership. It's about the ability to communicate to the CEO as well as the person in purchasing or procurement. And I think all designers share that need. 
to make sure that you, you you use your skill as powerfully as you can, actually. So I think it's serv- service design is a great place for me because I've always been trying to take design upstream, to knock on the door of the CEO's office and say, listen, we're going to give you a vision. We're going to a vision you can be proud of and we're going to deliver it. <laughs> and that's, that's hugely exciting to be working across that. But you're right. It's a role of leadership. It's a role of politics. It's a role of management. It's a role of inspiring, actually. People, I often say the thing, the most powerful thing we do is raise people's ambitions. So many people have a reason not to do something. We tried it last year, you know, la la. My good friend Johnny Ive and Steve Jobs raised ambitions beyond the stratosphere. And I have, I have this quote I always put at the end of my talks, which is weirdly a Che Guevara quote, which is be a realist, demand the impossible. And I feel like that every day. You know, if we don't, if we don't demand, demand the impossible, we're never, we're never even having a hope of getting there. So I really like trying to raise people's ambitions and think, well, let's think higher and broader. And maybe, especially with the way technology is going, we could achieve that. Oh, that's such a nice way to put it. And I love your point also about like that design is about raising ambition. Mm. And uh, it's a very nice way to put it, can totally agree. Um, talking maybe at the end shortly about the future of design, the future of service design, um, you teaching, you're heading up um, the department at SEA about service design. Education is fundamentally always about the future. I think you're preparing these students for the future. So you have to look into the future, maybe more than anyone else. So I think in that regard, I think I would be super interested in what do you want to achieve with the program and where do you see the future of design and service design specifically going? Wow. Okay. Big questions. Um, I mean, you know, my job is to, how do they put it? If you can stay a week ahead of the students, then you're okay. (laughs) But actually what I love about this course is I'm trying to open up our definition of what service is. You know, I no longer expect people to simply do a service. Here's a, here's a logo. Our service is Uber, Airbnb, driving grannies, you know, that's been great. And that is still a really important thing to do. But services, I think, are now much more about transformations. They're about interventions, as I was saying. And increasingly, um, service design is, I think, about the future. The future of service design is the future. (laughs) And there's a a few reasons I say that. One is that I think service design designers on the course are increasingly embracing the tools of speculative design, which is originally quite a sort of product provocative product from Dunn and Raby and many others, where you create an object that asks a question, it's critical. But we've seen with the the initial services that I just mentioned, Airbnb and and Uber, you know, Airbnb hollowed out the center of Barcelona. (laughs) They've turned Europe cities into Sunday morning clicker clatter of briefcase, uh, sorry, suitcase on cobbled streets. You know, nobody lives there anymore. This is an impact we didn't foresee, we didn't think, and suddenly it's negative. Uber have many challenges in many countries and cities for how they treat their drivers. And, you know, this wonderful world of services has got a bit dirty. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so therefore, I think the tools of speculative design, where we look 5, 10, 25 years out, has suddenly become very practical. Back to your strategy. It's become a strategic tool. We can model that future and we can be really, we can try and be quite realistic about it. You know, we know technology will change. We know the world changed. Nobody predicted covid but, but we can try and, and be critical and thoughtful about that. So a lot of our students are creating future scenarios. I've always been a massive fan of foresight in policy, EU policy. 
national policy. I think the, the, the grown-up ability to be sensible about the future, not science fiction, but try and understand it with data and human behaviour. Let's use our design skills to model the future, the future of sustainability, the future of so many things. The future now, the fourth industrial revolution, you know, we're all beginning to realise that the impact of AI might be a little bit out of control. And if if our health is being decided by an AI engine that decides whether I get a new organ or somebody over the road who's done a few more Fitbit steps than me, maybe they get it. (laughs) These are are real things. People go to prison in America because of postcodes and historic. My goodness. So our designers are absolutely focusing on those new areas and they're using the tools of considering the future to work out how we do that. I think the uh, the other thing to say about the future of service design that I really, really hope happens is that it will be much more integrated into everything. It won't be a luxury. It won't be, oh, do we need a service designer? They'll be there. It might take 10 years. We're still evangelizing. But I look at Britain, I look at our world-class track and trace system that was announced a year ago, utter disaster, terribly designed. We put all our trust in science, rightly so, when we get wonderful advances from science. But we need to dial up that human interactive service experience interaction with technology if we miss it out i think humanity will have problems i have to get onto my soapbox as we say in the uk and shout hey you're over here (laughs) you know when i go to a technology conference and ibm and microsoft are there and then it says here's clive from the royal college of art everyone leaves now i want them to stay (laughs) i want them to know this is a partnership and, and what we all do as designers, actually, is a partnership between humanity and technology and all the options we have. There are decisions to be made. We can help make those decisions better. And I feel very passionate that actually that's what we're all doing. We're all in this together. But certainly in service design, we're really trying to harness all our design skills with big systemic problems and make the world a better place. <laughs> and you're touching on a lot of, I think, very important aspect, you know, for example, also the responsibility, I think that we have with design, but also as service designer, right? You talk about the positive impact of services, basically, but also maybe there were certain things on the service design journey that were just not so important maybe to the business or we couldn't foresee these outcomes, right? But there's an opportunity uh, with services and to take them more and to consider them more, the environmental impact of a service, the aspect or the impact of a service to um, the community to people that are not actually interacting with the service, but just living in these areas. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, by taking a bigger picture, I think, and that's, I think, why services and it's getting more and more important also when it comes to public projects, government institutions, uh, where they really have to have a look more from these kind of lenses. So from the environmental perspective, from a society perspective and a community perspective, I think that's very interesting from a well-being perspective absolutely and early on make these policies or frameworks basically for services to operate better and also the aspect of speculative design that you're pointing out is increasingly also uh, important on the podcast because of you know just the importance and the interrelations to aspects like service design but also ux design and a lot of other disciplines this has been a super great chat uh, Clive, so thank you so much for that. I would love to continue to chat with you, but I think we need to uh, stop the recording yes. here and uh, wrap it up. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for inviting me to have a great rant with you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs>
All right, that was the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you give it a thumbs up. Let me know in the comments or by taking me in a post. What were the biggest learnings for you in the episode? I'm always super curious about that. If the episode provides you a lot of value, make sure to follow and subscribe and share it with friends or others so they also have the chance to learn and grow themselves. All right, until next time. Cheers.